The Apostle Paul wrote the earliest letter in the New Testament to a group of people who had just been delivered from the fear of judgment. The recipients of this letter lived in Thessaloniki. Let's join Dave Wurtzen as we begin our study of the letter Paul wrote from Corinth back to the new baby Christians in Thessaloniki. How many of you have ever felt a sense of impending doom? The darkness that enters your soul and you feel like, I, I just don't know what it is, and it just is like a dark cloud, and you never know when it's going to come, and you're frustrated because you feel like, I don't know what I can do to solve this, and I don't think there's an answer. Well, if, if you've just had an incredible loss of your entire industry, if you have experienced death, if you've experienced the doctor just told you that you have a malignancy, you should expect that you're going to go through a dark night of the soul. Some of you should realize that you can have a chemical imbalance. Sometimes things can get screwballed in your physical body. And it's very important for you as a believer to realize that we're still physical. We're still in the body. The fact that we've come to Christ doesn't mean that we're set free from all the pains and, and the hurts of our body. And that includes emotional pain. Sometimes you just need to go to the doctor and be able to get your nervous system cranked back up again. And as a believer, you shouldn't feel guilty about that. But I want to talk to you about the sense that you know that you've done bad things. I want to talk to you about a guilt and a sense of dread that we hardly ever talk about in our culture. But in the first century, the writer of the scripture talked about this a lot. Do you know that if you've worshipped idols, in other words, if, if you're living and if your friends are living just for stuff, in the ancient world, they lived for little gold figurines and little silver figurines and they lived for these idolatrous temples. They actually worshipped sexuality. The Roman emperor worshipped. They worshipped the power of politics and the power of armies. And if you, in your own life, are caught up in this life as all there is, and I'm living as if everything is just from the standpoint of 70 years, and you're worshipping all the things. In other words, if you get a brand new truck, man, I'm really alive, and, and that makes me somebody important. And then the truck gets wrecked, and you find yourself filled with despair... Well, you're worshiping the wrong thing. And I want to really challenge you that if you feel guilty because you're worshiping the wrong thing, and then if you're lying, if you're arrogant, if you steal, if you don't really love others, if all this is happening, you don't need to take a pill. You need to get really feeling worse because that's a legitimate guilt. And one of the greatest joys that there is in life is to be in this past state where I felt guilty, and it was legitimate guilt because I was really messing up, doing a lot of wrong things. Anybody, anybody remember a bad thing you've done? How many remember how bad you felt when you did the bad thing? When you experience forgiveness, isn't that one of the greatest joys that there is in life? Well, we're going to begin a study of the earliest letter in all of the New Testament. The earliest piece of literature that was ever written after the church was born at Pentecost. What did the Apostle Paul talk to a group of brand new baby believers? He'd only been with them for a few weeks. They came to know Christ. A lot of you have come to know Christ, right? Some of you came to know Christ many years ago, but this group had just come to know Christ. Nobody is older than a few weeks. How many of you would like to know what the Apostle Paul had to say after he was ripped away 
from this brand new baby church because of a big riot that broke out. He had to leave the city under cover of darkness. How many of you would like to be able to open the pages of a parchment scroll that he sent with one of his colleagues? And he told the Thessalonians what he was really concerned about. We're going to find out that rescue, rescued from the coming divine judgment, was one of the basic themes that the Apostle Paul is going to talk to. Well, you can actually do what I just described. Turn to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians is the earliest book in the New Testament. Matthew, actually your first book in the canonical scriptures, was written many years after Thessalonians. Thessalonians was probably written about 50 A.D., Jesus was crucified about 33 AD. You can do the math. So here we are, just a few years, just one generation after Jesus died and rose again. Now we've got this church in Thessaloniki. Just so you know a little bit about it, one of my close friends is from Thessaloniki. That's what they call it. In our history, it's also been called Salonika. It's the second largest city in the Greece, Macedonia. Just so you'll have a little picture today, the city of 800,000 people today. My friend that was born in Thessaloniki, and then he came to New York City. He came to know Christ as his Savior while he was filled with LSD and acid and everything else you can imagine. And he came to know Christ. Now he does evangelistic crusades in the city. I tell you that so that you won't just think of this being ancient history. Because there still is a city in this area. And in Paul's day in the first century, it's a strategic place. It's on the Via Ignatia, which is the road, the way that leads across Greece. When you go to the other side of Greece, you go across the sea and you enter right into the gates of Rome. It's on this major route from east to west. The Apostle Paul loved to go and proclaim the gospel in these strategic points. He has just been thrown out of Philippi. He comes through Amphipolis, and he comes through these other Greek cities, and then he comes to this very strategic, important city, and he establishes a church. And what we get to do is to listen to his writing, to his letter of what did he have to say after this new baby church in Thessaloniki has been founded, what does the great Apostle Paul say to these believers that are facing the heat of persecution? The heat of trial, they've just come to know Jesus. Will they hang on? What's going to make them hang on? The letter begins like all the New Testament letters begin. And I've shared this with you many times, but you'll understand that there's a structure. Like in in English letters, we start out, dear so-and-so, and and then you have to flip all the way to the end. It says, from so-and-so. The Greeks and Romans have put it together much easier. Right at the very first lines of the letter, on the parchment scroll or on the papyrus that you're writing on, You write from so-and-so, so so you don't have to look to the end. You know right away, this is from so-and-so to so-and-so. And all of Paul's letters follow that form. So let's see who is it from. It's from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. The very first thing that I want you to be aware of as you read this incredible first epistle, the first book of the New Testament in chronological order, is the Apostle Paul has a missionary team. This is a church planning team. One of the things I want you to begin to think of as believers is that you're in this together. As Americans, we're into rugged individualism. We are Clint Eastwoods, John Wayne, the guy that does everything by himself. I know I have that in me. I want to do things alone. I just want to do it myself. Any of you moms said that this week? I'm just going to do it myself. Nobody else does anything around here. 
Like when we first moved in this auditorium, for weeks and weeks and weeks, Mary and I set up the chairs here with my son because I was scared to ask other people to do it. That's crazy, absolutely crazy. If you're the kind of person that says, if you got to get anything done, it's going to be me that has to do it. Well, you're going to be doing things by yourself all of your life. And you're going to get really tired and eventually you're going to get really mad and eventually you're going to go someplace else where you're just going to be able to sit and not have to do anything. And you're going to miss out on the greatest joys in the body of Christ. One of the greatest opportunities we have is to be Paul, Silas, and Timothy, a team. In the New Testament, and I want you to be reading this, very seldom does the New Testament talk about private prayer. Very seldom do they talk about individual quiet times. Those are all really good things. But as Americans, in fact, as I look over my training in the Christian life, that's the big thing. Private prayer, private time in the Word, hours and hours. In the Scripture, they always talk about us and we. They pray together in groups. And they worked in teams. And here's the church planning team. The Apostle Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was the one that persecuted Christians. Just so if you're not into the story of Paul, we'll catch up a little bit. He was Jewish. He was trained as a very devout Jew. He persecuted the early Christians in the city of Jerusalem. Then he was gloriously saved on a trip where he wanted to go to Damascus to persecute Christians more. It's a very famous story. And every time Paul is in a crunch, he tells the story of how the living resurrected Christ appeared to him on the Damascus road. And he became one of the founding apostles. And other than Jesus Christ, he's used by the Holy Spirit to lay the foundations of the church. He's an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ because he saw a heavenly vision of Jesus after he died. Has great authority. He's also an apostle that's primarily focused on not Jewish believers, which is very creative because he's very Jewish. He was raised Jewish, but he spends all of his life ministering cross-culturally. So don't get hung up that like always needs to deal with like because Paul was someone that was Jewish that spent his whole life reaching out to Gentiles. That's the Apostle Paul. Now, Silas is someone that you know well. The Apostle Paul knew Silas from the church in Jerusalem. Silas is one of the main leaders in the church in Jerusalem. So, for example, in Acts 15, they have a big fight. Should we make Gentile believers have to go through the agonizing surgery of circumcision if they're men, if they're going to get into the body of Christ? And praise God... The early church said, no, 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 no. If you're Gentile, you don't have to become Jewish. You don't have to get circumcised. You don't have to obey all the the Jewish laws. And Silas was one that was entrusted with this letter from the Jerusalem church with this incredible liberating good news. If you're Gentile, you don't need to become Jewish, which was one of the most important decisions that was made in the first century. Because instead of Christianity just becoming this little group within ethnic Judaism, it became this incredible worldwide good news that you didn't have to become Jewish. You could be Gentile, and now you can be English, you can be Indian, you can be Chinese, you can be African-American, you can be Hispanic, you can be whatever you want to. You can, you can listen to all different kinds of music, and you can wear all different kinds of clothes, and gain all different kinds of food, and you can still be a child of God. Do you understand that? It's an incredible liberation. And Silas, I want you to know, was one of the early church leaders of Jerusalem that took that good news. That the gospel of Jesus Christ was to make disciples of every ethnic group and all ethnicities and every people group in all of the planet. 
When the Apostle Paul had a big fight with Barnabas, and Barnabas took his nephew Mark, the Apostle Paul took Silas, and something you have to get used to in the body of Christ, if you're going to leave Jesus and forget about being believers together because you see people that don't act just like Christ, they get angry, and relationships fracture, you're not going to get very far because you're not home yet. And the Bible's very honest. Paul and Barnabas had a fight they couldn't resolve. They're two of the most godly men. And that's been one of the hardest things in my life. What tempts me to move away from Jesus is, man, often people that I really look up to act like total idiots. Some of my unbelieving friends work through personality conflict better than they do. Maybe I should forget about the Jesus. Don't forget about Jesus. Jesus ain't the one that doesn't resolve conflicts. He's the ultimate prince of peace. Keep your eyes on him. And also keep your eyes on how God takes even our frailties and explodes it. Silas, when you read the name Paul and Silas, you're reminded God is taking brokenness. Paul and Barnabas' broken relationships, which, by the way, was resolved as the course of time took place. But God used their temporary fracturing to open up a new missionary team. So instead of one missionary team, you have two. So the Lord takes some of you that get mad. You go to another church, and you've sat here for 15 years, haven't really done a blessed thing, except sit, soak, and sour. You go to another church, suddenly they really need you. And you suddenly realize, hey, man, I know a bunch of stuff from God's word. I've been listening. And you start to suddenly blossom. That's an awesome thing. And I want you to know that I rejoice in that. I rejoice how the Lord takes all of the the unbelievable things that we all sometimes do and produces missionary teams that help other churches to grow. Does that make sense? And I'm giving you the big picture. Silas was a church planner with the Apostle Paul. He was an apostle like Paul. He was probably on a very similar level. Paul is the senior apostle. But Silas is recognized in the New Testament as an apostle as well, which would mean that he was an eyewitness as well as a resurrected Christ. And then Timothy is the younger guy. Timothy was one that was born in Lystra and raised in Lystra. His daddy's an unbeliever. His mama and his grandmother know Jesus as their Savior, believe in him as Jews. So Timothy is a Jewish mama boy. If you've been raised with Jewish kids, Jewish mamas are really strong. And Timothy wrestles with insecurity because of that. It's hard for him to be a man. It's hard for him to stand up and to lead. The Apostle Paul steps into that gap. And becomes his spiritual daddy. And Timothy becomes one of the most powerfully used young men as we read the New Testament. All of you that are older in the Lord, like if you're an older man, if you've walked with the Lord for many years, it's really important for you to be mentoring young Timothys. You need to have those like Paul that are farther down the road. But you also need to have those that you're helping that are younger than you. As we're growing older in our walk with the Lord, that's what's going to keep you vital. It's what's going to keep you alive, that you keep looking to those that are older, but you also keep joining with and doing things with and mentoring and helping those that are young. We can learn a whole lot from the way that the Apostle Paul does that and the way that he gives Timothy responsibility. He causes him to go down to the churches that are troubled and he is like a troubleshooter that helps the church and brings Paul's letter. What an incredible example. So here we have a missionary team, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. The very first thing I want you to think about, do you think of doing things alone 
or do you think of doing things together? And maybe the Lord will lay upon your heart. Maybe there's some of you that are younger that need to go to a Paul and Silas that are a little bit older, and you need to join with them. And I want to, are you the guys that are younger, the older Paul and Silas's, they're intimidated by you. And they ain't going to come. Probably they should, but they're probably not going to ask you to eat breakfast. You know why? Because they don't understand all your text messaging during the breakfast. They don't understand all the music. They don't, they don't know any of the music that you listen to. So they feel like you're from another planet. But I challenge you, like I can think when my father-in-law was alive, some of our younger men grabbed my father-in-law when he moved down here and they just started meeting with them and their lives were changed. So maybe the Holy Spirit will use the beginning of Thessalonians to start to get that. Those of you that are older, are you grabbing younger people? Are you spending time with younger people? Like in my own life, one day I meet with a 19-year-old. Another morning I meet with guys, some of them are almost 85, but there's some 18-year-olds at the table as well. That's really fun with everything in between. we got an 18-year-old on the end of the table. In the middle of the table, there's a guy that fought in World War II and flew bombers. And then at the other side of the table, there's everybody in between. That's fun. Really cool thing. And then on another morning, I meet with guys that are a little bit older than me. Boy, the conversation is different. Now, on Monday night, during a regular time, I meet with a bunch of 18 to 25-year-olds that don't even know Jesus, a lot of them. That's what I want you to do. The reason I'm doing that is I want you to say, hey, Dave's with me in this. And I want you to do that. And on those of you that are my age and above, I don't want you to get old and cranky and just sitting there and watching TV all the time. I want you to keep joining with younger folks. And you're going to have to aggressively do that so that we become teams that are building God's family, getting new churches started. That's the thing that happens. A new church is started. Paul and Silas and Timothy walk into a city, no believers at all, big Roman emperor temples, big pagan temples. And a few weeks later, after they told people and they started in the synagogue, and then Paul worked with skins in the workplace. So some of you that are construction workers, or maybe you work with your hands, maybe you make things. Paul was someone that worked with skins. He tanned hides. He developed all the skin materials so that you would have material to build your homes and different articles within your house. He was someone that was a tent maker, but it was far more than making tents for bath pro shop. In those days, this was basic construction material that was used a lot. And the apostle Paul would minister in the synagogue that were used to that, debating in a religious place. But then he worked with his hands during the week. When they weren't meeting in the synagogue, he worked, and that's one of the greatest places. Think of all the contacts you have. If you're a medical doctor, if you're a veterinarian and those things, you're seeing about 50, 55 people a day. Multiply that. That means you have incredible opportunities. God has given you incredible opportunities. If you work construction, you're working with multi-ethnicities. You're working with people that come in from all over the place. If you work in the healthcare industry, you have one person after another. The Apostle Paul shows us how you get churches going. He proclaimed the gospel in the flow of his workplace. Then he also did it from house to house. Jason came to know Christ as the Savior. He was a prominent citizen in the city of Thessaloniki. And Jason started having Paul out. I know that later because when the riot breaks out, they can't find Paul, so they grab Jason. 
and they almost kill him. And Jason is this brand-new baby believer that suffers because of Christ. But Jason evidently had a home, and the early church was found in a home. That's why you need to have small groups that meet in your home. Unbelievers will come to your home quicker than they'll come here. Outdoor barbecues this summer are incredible places. Don't have outdoor barbecues just for you and your own family and your own brothers and sisters. Have the neighbor next door that hasn't gone to church listen to his story. Listen to why he doesn't believe in Jesus or thinks the whole thing is a bunch of bunk. When he sees you and hears your testimony, I guarantee over time they come to Jesus. A lot of them do. And I want to see that that's how the early church got new churches started. The great apostle Paul ministered in the synagogue. He ministered in the marketplace while he worked with his hands. And then he was in homes day by day. We need that to multiply. And in our society where people aren't having people in their homes anymore and where relationships are breaking down, there's a big vacuum where people are hungry, new people moving in. They want to make friendships. Invite them over. In your Sunday school classes, people aren't going to come to your Sunday school class unless you ask them. You understand that? That's the way you get your group to grow. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist that really became the fountainhead of my dad's ministry, D.L. Moody went to a church and he said, I want to teach little kids. Do you have any little kids? They said, no, we don't have any little kids. And they said, Moody, you want to teach little kids? Here's a room. Go get some kids. So D.L. Moody went out to Chicago, and soon they had tons and tons of kids. The whole YMCA back then was involved in evangelism. They didn't take people that were ready-made. They went out, and they invited people, and they aggressively interacted with people. That's what we need to do. Paul and Silas and Timothy were doing that. When they inducted my mom into World Life's Ring of Honor, the man that was inducted with her is a businessman from Columbus, Ohio. He went to Ohio State, and he's a rabid Ohio State fan. He entered into the family business after his military career, and his company exploded. He was a young, up-and-coming business guy in Columbus. And his brother-in-law, of all things, came to know Jesus as his Savior. And this businessman in Ohio thought he was nuts. He was one of those really weird born-againers. He didn't want to have anything to do with it. But his brother-in-law that was a dentist kept after him. Come on, you need to come, you need to come. In fact, we're going to have a banquet for business people and their wives. It's going to be in a nice place. We want you to come. This brother-in-law pestered his brother-in-law so much that this guy came. And that night, my dad preached and said, Christ died for his sins. You don't get to heaven by being good. God sent his son. You get to heaven by just trusting in him. And it clicked in my friend Bill that night. And he opened his heart to Jesus. He then began to grow in the Lord. And the reason that he was honored is because as a businessman, he traveled with my dad, and he traveled with Harry Balbeck, took after my dad. Bill has now, with his wife Mary Jo, has traveled all over the world, in Argentina and in Europe. And, and the Lord powerfully blessed him in business, and he was able to really use his business gifts, not only to give material gifts, but also to help an organization and all that. He also is one of the major guys that encourages Mary and I in, in Truth Encounter. And now he was born again probably 35 years ago. And now all that time has come by. And it happened because one brother-in-law didn't allow rejection by his brother-in-law to cause him to stop inviting him. And my friend's life was incredibly changed. That's how God's family grows. 
It's when we invite and when we reach out and when we're continually excited about sharing the gospel and then new churches are started. The Apostle Paul, as the church is started, you have a team that church planning, you have a new baby church that started, then you have the Apostle Paul expressing incredible thanksgiving for what's going on. One of the things I want us to learn to do, it's very important to express thanksgiving for one another. In fact, every single letter the Apostle Paul writes, he begins in the letter, except Galatians, where he has a big theological thing he needs to deal with them, but every other book, in the Greek letter, there was a thanksgiving. And the reason they did this is they said, this letter is from so-and-so to so-and-so. Those of you that are in business, now listen really carefully if you're in business, because some of you blow your business because you never develop pathos with everyone you're working with. In other words, people don't like you. You hear me? Some of you are really efficient. You've got a whole list of things. You've got brilliant ideas, but nobody does your ideas. Anybody having that trouble? Like you know all the things that people are supposed to do, but they never do it because they don't like you. Anybody ever deal with that trouble? Well, in Greek rhetoric, which applied to letter writing, you began your letter by saying grace and peace be to you. And then you had a major thanksgiving where you tell the people you're writing to, you butter them up. Now, if you're a liar, you do this illegitimately. That's something very valuable I teach you. Watch out for a person that praises you. If they're a liar, and one of the ways you can tell, if they praise you for things that are not true, they're lying, and they'll lie to you about everything else. But on the other hand, if you're like me, my basic attitude is you should do what you're supposed to do. So I don't expect thanks from you, and I'm not going to thank you. We need to just do it. Anybody like that? And so when I'm in groups where someone's gushing praise and gushing thanksgiving, I say, oh, come on, let's get on to the important thing. Anybody with me? The Holy Spirit says, word, son, that's wrong. That's wrong. You need to be thankful. The Apostle Paul, after he says grace and peace to you, he has a major section, which is a major part of the Greek letter, where the point of this in the letter is before you get to what you need to talk to them about, You want to develop their receptivity to you, and you do it by expressing legitimate thanksgiving, legitimate praise for them. Look what the Apostle Paul does. He gushes. He says, we always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continue to remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus. The Apostle Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, I want you to know that Timothy, Silas, and I, we get together, and we're Jewish, and Jews pray at least three times a day, which is covering all the day. And you say, well, what did Paul and Silas and Timothy, what did they do when they prayed? Here it is. So one of the things that I do when I read stuff like this, I ask myself, well, have I done that this week? Like when I meet with a pastoral team, when I meet with fellow elders, when I meet with fellow believers, do I ever spend some time just thanking God? What does the Apostle Paul thank the Lord for? He thanks the Lord for what he did in Thessalonica. Now, what did he do in Thessalonica? So they thank God for all of you. And I notice the all of you. How many of you say, well, I can thank the Lord for so-and-so, but not for so-and-so? 
You thank the Lord for everybody that's in your Sunday school class, everybody that's in your small group. You thank the Lord for all the people. The Apostle Paul has a great heart for all the believers in Thessaloniki. And he's saying, I thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. One of the most important things that we can get from this, we need some of you because we've heard this today, that we're going to get really serious about thanking the Lord for the believers that you know. You say, well, Dave, what do I thank the Lord for? You remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith. Paul could think of believers in Thessaloniki that had come to know Jesus by faith. They trusted in Jesus. That's what he's talking about. The Bible doesn't teach that you're saved by works. Some of you this morning think that if you give enough money to Wimana, if you mentor enough kids at the high school, if you go to Haiti six times to help in the disaster relief, that it'll cover up the fact that you slept with the wrong man or woman, that you stole in your income tax, that you couldn't care less really most of the time about God, you live for yourself. You think if you do enough good things, that it'll cover the bill. And the Bible says, no, it won't. It won't. So you need to really understand that grace says God knows everything about you, and you're going to have to come to the place that you realize you don't deserve him at all, and you're going to have to just trust in his son. But then I want you to understand something. When you believe, it produces works. In the culture that we're involved in, we debate constantly about faith and works, works and faith. The New Testament always has faith first, but there's no final conflict between Paul and James. If you know Jesus as your Savior, and there's not a shred of evidence in your life I can't find anything you've ever done for Jesus. I can't find anything that Jesus ever caused you to do for him. Then I don't know where in the world you are. With my kids, as my kids grow older, as I grow older, I would just with my older brother, Don. Don is my daddy's son. You say, how do you know? He talks like him. He looks like him. When people haven't seen my brother Don in a long time, they go, oh, man, there's Jack. My brother spent half his life rebelling against my dad, and now it's hilarious. He looks just like my dad. That's what's going to happen to you. Don't laugh too hard. <laughs> when you meet my brother, some of you said, my brother walked in and said, oh, man, it's another word son. Why? Because we have those genes in us. Mary watches a movie and says, man, he walks like a word son. How's a word son walk? If Jesus really came into your heart by faith, his genes were created in your life, and I should be able to see it. That's what Paul means. And what we need to learn to do is we need to thank the Lord. You want to change the way you fellowship with other believers? Start to be alert for where do I see evidence of the genes of Jesus in a believer's life? Where do I see work that flows from their faith? You see, I want you to know if you know Christ as your Savior, that that belief powerfully produces action in your life. The next thing that it does, it produces labor, which is exactly like the word for work. No, it's not the same word in Greek, but it's just Paul likes the different sound. He says, I want you to know the labor that's prompted by love. As we read this book, the Lord wants to increase our family love for one another, the self-sacrifice that we made for one another, the gift of gracious love for one another. He wants to produce that in your marriages. He wants to produce that in your family of believers. And when you love somebody, one of the prominent things you do is you do things for them. I was at Walmart. I run in to somebody in our church. 
And there's two of her friends with her. They work in the school. And one of the teachers had just lost their husband. So what do I see? I see three shopping carts filled with stuff. They said, just haphazardly, they just said, we just wanted to do something. Flowers were there. Groceries were there. Why do you do that? Because there's labor that's prompted by love. You do that enough within a community, and you connect it with Jesus, and people get saved. That's what the Thessalonians have. When people really come to know Christ, they love. And I want to pray that there's going to be an incredible love movement. If you're a husband, and you say, well, I tell my wife all the time I love her, do you have labor? Like, Ken, I go to your wife and say, well, give me some specific work that your husband did for you because he loves you this week. Otherwise, it's a bunch of baloney. And girls, it'll really help you if you learn that I don't listen so much to what someone says. I watch what they do. Younger teenagers, watch what guys do if you're a girl. Vice versa. Watch what the guy, the other way. Labor that produced by love. You know someone loves you by the labor that they do for you. And the final thing is what we start out with a rescue. And this is the big triad of the first century church. Faith, hope, and love. Hope, when you have a hope in the future. As a believer, your greatest days still lie ahead. The greatest privileges are in the future. Isn't that incredible? If you're 84, you're just a baby in Christ. In terms of a, of a father that says a thousand years is like a day... Sam Rogers can do the math in his head. If you're 84 and a thousand years is like a day, how old are you? You've barely started to breathe. Amen. And that's a cool thing. As you wrestle with sudden accidents where someone's snuffed out, as you wrestle with finding out of malignancies, in our modern world, one of the things we're learning is we think we're indestructible. We're not. If you know Jesus as your Savior, your greatest days are still ahead. Amen. That's what the hope, the hope, it says that there's endurance. And the idea is that you keep running the race. You keep moving with the Lord because it's inspired by the hope that's in our Lord Jesus Christ. What I want you to see in so far as I've just been able to whet your appetite about a team of church planners. And one of the things I want you to really be praying for is, Lord, I want you to explode the movement of God in Midlothian. One of my really precious friends that's really close to me lost their son in a tragic accident. And some of those that are really close to me went down there just because they wanted to come alongside their friend. But the Lord used their expertise because they spent their whole life in our church family to help that church that's south of here to grow in Christ. Brothers and sisters, don't reject that. Don't feel, well, that's wrong. And I want you to know as a pastor teacher, one of the greatest joys to me is to see the Lord take people that have been in our group, that have been nurtured by our group, and then they become powerfully involved in expanding God's family. Jonathan's going to get ready to go to one of the stands pretty soon, and we're going to be praying that the Lord in the middle of the Islamic world is going to get a church started. What an incredible joy. One of our guys right now is in the Middle East, and he's seeing a church born. You send Dave and Cindy Cox down into Brazil, and they'll be coming back here for their furlough, and we can nurture them, and we can help them to find relief and refreshment, and then we can send them back. Brothers and sisters, are you a part of that? That incredible, explosive movement. I just 
picked out just a few things. Guys, you don't know, that's, that's work. That's action. We have to pray that we'll keep being used to build God's kingdom. One of the things that Thessalonians wants to do in our life is to cause us to get excited about the power of the gospel. To do it in teams and to see that explosive power to generate new bodies of Christ. New believers that are born again to God's family. We've only just begun. You ask questions about the Lord's coming. And so that's where we're going to be going. We're going to take 1 Thessalonians. We're going to put it in context. We're going to understand what the coming of the Lord meant to this brand new group of believers. And let's pray that it'll come to mean a great deal to us.